morning. For all of our visitors, thank you for being here today. And I failed to mention in the opening, you see, this is Ryan's job, it's not mine. He, he's supposed to say these things, so I don't remember them. If you got a bulletin this morning, there's a visitor's tab on there, and I know the offering has already been passed, but if you would kindly fill those out and take them to the visitor center. For those of you who are visitors and may not know this, Liberal Kansas is the pancake capital of the world. And we have a special welcome gift of pancakes complete with syrup for you at the Welcome Center. So be sure and stop by there and get one of your thank you gifts for being with us this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter number 24, I promise you I'll be there in a little bit. But I want to say some things to you this morning before I get to all of that. Um, I've had several people ask me about the title of my message this week, and some of you who don't uh, get planning center or aren't aware of these things, so I'm just going to tell you right from the start here this morning, the title of my message is The Affair at the Pastor's House. Now are you ready to listen? Um, I've, you see, I've come to believe that pastors are much more exalted than what we deserve to be. Uh, within most churches at least the ones that I've been a part of, the pastor is looked upon as being the messenger from God. Can I tell you what a lofty responsibility that is? He's even identified as the bishop, the overseer, the, par the parson, the elder, the man. And in some cases, even the wise man. Some of our larger churches, the pastor is seen as this multi-haloed shepherd, so to speak. A highly spiritualized version of who, they, who we really are. Most pastors, however, are viewed as being somewhat more than a layman, somewhat less than a God. That's not who we are. Because the fact is that whether a church loves or hates their pastor, he is the central figure in what people view as their church here on earth. I, I've been a part of churches where the pastor is, is deemed to be too divine to play guards with the deacons. Uh, too serious about human redemption to listen to rock and roll from the 70s and 80s. Viewed as a person who studies thick gray books in a dimly lit study for entertainment. Where he is viewed as the deliverer and... I think in many cases, people view the pastor as being one whom God always delivers fresh manna and roast quail at his door. When children walk by a pastor's study, it's not unusual for the pastor to hear things like this. This is his room. He's old and wise. He was alive in the old days and he knew all of the disciples personally. Now, of course, I hope you understand that I am exaggerating. But the tragedy of this entire farce that I'm sharing with you is that if a pastor tries to deny or to diffuse all of these mistaken impressions about him, what happens? It only makes him look more holy because he's so humble. Being a pastor is not an easy thing. The more humble he looks, the more humble he sounds the more holy people will exalt him to be. So let me share with you this morning an absolutely true account of what happened one day when I was serving as the Christian Education Director in my home church in Garden City. I was directing a vacation Bible school when this very unnerving thing happened to me. The five-year-old's class was enjoying their daily cookies and Kool-Aid just as I happened to walk by the classroom. And one of them noticed me, so I said to that little five-year-old, I said, do you know who I am? And very comfortably and very casually, the little boy said, yes, I do. You're God. <laughs> now that boy's words jarred me so badly, I had to go back to my office to just sit and process it all. It occurred to me, though, that this is something that our children do to us. 
They look at those of us who are in positions of authority as in the church as, as God. We are their, their identity, I guess, of what they think God to be. And I believe that even those of us who are just ordinary parents also assume that same role in our children's eyes. And that's what brings me around this morning to talk to you about your role as fathers, how your children, how your household actually perceives you and the importance of that because in many ways, you are God to them. As I thought about that incident that I just relayed to you, one part of me felt really proud, I guess, to be looked upon in that fashion, but a much bigger part of me realized that the best way to come down from such a lofty position as that was just to go home. And so at home, my humanity is much more obvious than my calling. My family will remind me that they have not so easily noticed my godliness. My wife notices the odor in my blue dress socks as well as my sweaty dress shirts. My kids, my girls, when they were home, weren't shocked to hear me burp after eating radishes. And some of you who are looking at me saying, I can't believe you just said that, you've done it too. <laughs> I'll bet that my wife wouldn't even consider me looking like a god in my boxer shorts, but that's another story. <laughs> All of that to say, home is the place where I can really be who I am. I'm human. And you see, being looked upon as a God, dads, is not a comfortable position for any of us to live in. If they were asked, a lot of people in the church would prefer that their pastor sound like a, a pastor all the time. You know, somewhat of a mix between Billy Graham with a touch of Elijah thrown in every once in a while. They want and expect their pastor to have a Galatians 2.20 reputation. I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. They want that type of persona in a pastor. Let me just tell you, that's a trap. It really is. That they, they, they need to go home with me. They need to hear me in my humanity. They, they need to know what the woman who knows me best knows about me. So what is it about the pastor's home that has the power to and I don't use this term irreverently, but what is it about the pastor's home that has the power to de-God the pastor or the father? Well, it's a retreat where love complains, where love falls dormant. Oh yeah, it comes and it goes, but it's not quite like the pastor when he preaches, love never fails. It's not that way all the time. Pastor's house is where you hear the godly pastor gasp when bills come triple, triple stamped. It's the place where the pastor and his wife yearn with anticipation at the prospect of having some alone time at a pastor's conference. And yes, when the highlights of being pastor are over, <clears throat> the hurts come, and some of them hurt badly. There have been times when it seems as if there's no one who will put their arms around you and it just when you need it, so you just hightail it home. Believe it or not, I heard the former general superintendent of the Assemblies of God make this statement, and I love it. Kind of surprising coming from the, the general soup, but here it is. He says, given a good home life, a pastor can stand anything, even a good Pentecostal church. Guys, those of us who are husbands and fathers and grandfathers, you are the priests of your home. So in many ways, your calling is similar to mine. You, in much the same way as I, as a, as I a pastor, serve as the shepherd of the flock, you serve in the role of being the head of your household. So as I today talk about my role as pastor, husband, and father, I want you to view yourselves in very similar roles as husband, leader, and priest of your household like, as I said, for you to be with me in Genesis chapter number 24. And let me just say that since we don't have the, the projector screen with the verses on it this morning, you can, if you have your smartphone, you can go to version. 
click the event tab. It'll take you straight to Trinity Faith Church and you'll have all of my notes right there. Or if you have your Bibles, imagine that, having in your Bibles. Just go with me to Genesis chapter number 24. It's a chapter with 67 verses, so I'm not going to read them all. I'll give you a context from where I'm speaking, but I just want to begin reading with verse number 10 and read through verse number 32. It's the story of a servant whose name is Eleazar. Been sent by his master whose name was Abraham on a journey to find a bride for his master's son whose name is Isaac. And verse 10 tells us that the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed with all kinds of his master's goods in hand. Then he set out for the town of Nahor, Araham Naharim. He made the camels kneel beside a well of water outside the town at evening. This was the time when the women went out to draw water. Lord God of my master Abraham, he prayed, grant me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. And let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink, and who responds, drink and I'll water your camels also, let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful, a young woman who had not known a man intimately. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. And then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, Drink, my lord. And she quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they've had enough to drink. Now keep that in mind because I'm going to come back to that. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. After the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and for her two and for her wrists two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you? he asked. Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She answered him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She also said to him, we have plenty of straw and feed and a place to spend the night. Then the man bowed down, worshipped the Lord, and said, Praise the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. The girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now Rebekah had a brother named Laban, and Laban ran out to the man at the spring. As soon as he had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he had heard his sister Rebekah's words, the man said this to me. He went to the man. He was standing there by the camels at the spring. Laban said, Come, you who are blessed by the Lord, why are you standing out here? I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and feed were given to the camels, and water was brought to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him. <laughs> it's a great story. I hope you have time to read the rest of it. See, we find back in Genesis chapter number 15, verse number 2, that there was this man whose name was Abraham who had been given the promise by God that he was going to be the progenitor or the father of many great nations. In fact, he was told that his lineage would number as the sands of the sea and stars in the sky. And through a miraculous set of circumstances, Abraham and his wife, Sarah were not able to conceive a child, so after they were beyond childbearing years, God brought them a miraculous son whose name was Isaac. I believe Sarah was 90 years old, and 
Abraham not a hundred, and I want to get that picture out of my mind just as fast as I can, thinking that she had a child at 90. But anyway, God gave them this son. And now this son was grown and was in need of a wife. And so Abraham sent his servant, his master servant, Eleazar, to seek out a wife for Isaac. Now keep in mind, this wasn't just a trip into town. If you look at a Bible map of this journey, it involves some 450 miles on the back of a camel. Now when Eleazar arrived in his master's homeland where he was to find this bride, he prayed to God that he would be shown the right woman by means of a fleece. Have you heard that word before? A fleece. A fleece is a, a situation that you lay before God wherein if certain things happen in a specific way, then you will know that God's involved. So this fleece in this instance was, was this. That at the time of the day when the women of the village came out to draw water, the one who offered to water Eleazar's camels would be the one that God had chosen to be Isaac's bride. Now, I want to talk to you about these camels. Eleazar brought with him ten camels. Now, we're not told in the scriptures why he brought ten camels. At least not specifically, but I can come up with a couple of possible reasons on my own. One, we are told that he brought with him all the goods that belonged to his master. Find that in verse 10. And it, the reason for that was in order to impress the family of this bride-to-be. But a second and much more logical reason, as far as I'm concerned, is that if and when this bride-to-be consented to return with Eleazar to his master's home in, Caleb, in Canaan, all of us who are husbands can only imagine how many camels it would take to haul all the luggage. Anyway, <laughs> Eleazar was not impressed at the first by this maiden whose name was Rebecca. He just really wants to know one thing about this woman. Can she withstand the rigors of desert living where even the fairest of ladies sweat too much to be considered a candidate for Miss Mesopotamia, 1784 B.C.? So the real test that Eleazar wants to see is if she can pass this. Can, she, can this beauty queen water these camels? Now I say this in all seriousness because if you'll notice... In this 24th chapter of Genesis, the word camels is mentioned no less than 15 times throughout the course of those 67 verses. That would indicate to me that if Isaac and this bride-to-be, Rebecca, are going to make it to their golden wedding anniversary in Canaan, they're going to have to learn how to take care of camels together. Even if it seems crazy to us, Eleazar says, if this is the right girl for my master's son, Isaac, please let her like these camels. Now I believe it had to be a great relief to Eleazar, having traveled 450 miles on this journey, when Rebecca comes up to him and says something along these lines. Hey, how about some water? Going to get you some water. And, oh, and look at those poor camels. They must be just dying of thirst. It's a sure sign. Rebecca staggers through the stifling heat of that desert day, up and down who knows how many stair steps to get to the well to bring what I have figured out and calculated to be 73 firkins of water to those ten camels. Now let me give you some real numbers and an explanation of what a firkin is. A firkin was a type of measurement in that day which was a modern day equivalent of nine gallons. Now an average camel we are told, just an average camel, one camel can hold more than, are you ready for this? 65 gallons of water. You always wondered what those humps were for. Now, if you take 65 gallons times 10 camels, you divide 
that number, 650 by 9 gallons per firkin, that's 73 firkins. Now here's where it gets better. The average water pot in those days held three gallons. So it took three pots of water to make a firkin. So three times 73 equals 219 trips to and from the water well in order to satisfy the thirst of those camels. Would you agree with me? She had to love camels. She, she had to. Notice this though. Eleazar doesn't have any photos to give her of this man whose name was Isaac that he was going to take her home to. No exchange of photos. No references to anything to do with falling in love. And that's where I want to make my message. Have you noticed how easy it is to fall in love these days? But what I've also noticed is that it's almost equally as easy to fall out of love these days. Even for ministers. <laughs> Christianity Today magazine not too long ago said that 12% 12, 12% of ministers confessed to doing something sexually illicit at which they were never caught. Another 12% that said that they had done something that was at least inappropriate for our minister to do. Another survey from another source says, and this is more current, and this is more shocking to me, 33% of American pastors have admitted that they have as a pastor dabbled in pornography while in the pastor's office. Now I say that about pastors, and I would... I would guess that maybe the numbers are even higher for those of us who are just plain old dads. And it's some of those things that cause me so great concern for the fathers of today. You see, even in pastors' homes, it's easy to fall out of love. It's taken its toll on plenty of minister friends that I have. But again, my point in all of this is to say this, it takes more than a romantic notion to survive in a Christian home. It takes a woman, now I want you to hear me carefully because I don't want any misunderstanding about what I'm getting ready to say. It takes a woman whose motto is Ephesians 5.22, and yes, that's the one where it says women, women are to be submissive to their husbands. Now, ladies, hang on, hang on. It takes a woman whose creed is as the woman who is described by Solomon in Proverbs chapter number 31. The secret of a woman, a good woman, he says, is dignity and honor, one who fears the Lord, whose husband trusts her, who becomes a source of honor to her entire family. It takes a woman who can stand a life with very few honors. It takes both a man and a woman who place their egos, who place their potential careers beneath the feet of Jesus. And it takes a type of love that would rather die than ever see anything bad happen to one another. It takes a prayer life that's baptized with the intensity of the Holy Spirit. And it forsakes the very fiery agenda of their own lives for the sake of someone else's marital security. What do I mean by that? Well, simply this. Many times when Brenda and I have a, 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 a deep need to just be alone for a while, we have to sacrifice our needs for someone in the church who needs counseling for their own marital needs. And I confess to you that, be, that, that we do that. Also, sometimes we do it probably less than gladly because that's what ministry, that's what the pastorate are all about. We do it as unto the Lord. But the love affair in the home is one that must be free to hurt together. Unashamed to cry together see its need to kneel together and pray and cry as one. And then and only then can we glean the real truth of what 
Ruth says in Ruth chapter 1 verse number 16 when she says to her mother-in-law, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go, and whither thou lodgest I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Let me say to you all, all you single guys out there, first of all, Seek a girl who waters camels. And I don't say that to disrespect our ladies in the room at all. I say that because beauty queens require thrones, not aprons. Servants are better than princesses because they don't resent the bond of a man in love with Jesus. Seek the right kind of woman who will allow you to be the right kind of man. The camels of Genesis chapter number 24, I believe, suggest to us the issue of identity. Isaac apparently loved camels. And it was important for him to have a wife who could not only endure this camel fetish, but who could also participate in it. I heard the story once of a man who was a trash collector. A garbage man who loved to witness to people about Jesus. And one night this trash uh, collector called on a single nurse and he talked to her about the Lord and she accepted Jesus as her Savior. And as a kind of bonus, he asked her out on a date the next week and she accepted. They began dating and this lady later told her pastor, she said, Pastor, when he first came to my house and asked me for a date, all he could talk about was trash. He even took me over to his house to see all the neat stuff in his garage that he'd collected that people had just thrown away. And I thought at the time that he had to be the weirdest man I've ever known. But now I'm changing my mind because look at this coffee table. Someone just threw it away. And now my garage is full of the wonderful things he finds in the garbage. I'll tell you right now, folks, had I been that pastor... I would have encouraged them at that very moment to get married. How often does a trash collector run into a woman who loves trash? They were meant to be together. The camels mentioned in this passage are also witnesses. They witness Eleazar slipping the golden ring into Rebekah's ear, and as a result, she's now engaged to Isaac. I mentioned a while ago that 22nd verse of Ephesians 5. That verse contains a word that a lot of women in today's society have a problem with. The word is submit. And the reason for the problem with that word is because it was written in a culture with a different meaning. When, when the Apostle Paul penned it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit some 2,000 years ago. In fact, there are five passages throughout the New Testament that speak of this idea of submission. It's the Greek word, hupotasso. Uh, even, even though most of these passages, those five passages speak of a woman being submissive to a man, the fact of the matter, guys, now this is where it comes back to you. The fact of the matter is that when it comes to husbands and wives, they are to exercise mutual submission one to the other. If you look at verse 21 of that same Ephesians chapter number 5, it says that all Christians are to be servants of each other. Man serving his wife, wife serving her husband. So the essence or the central thought of that entire passage is the idea of lordship. In these days of white-hot, feminist fervor and the constant insistence on the equality of the sexes, these passages present a great difficulty for some people. Some women have gone to great lengths to show their equality, even to the extreme of accusing the Apostle Paul to be a male chauvinist. But let me tell you something, friends. Here's the deal. If you'll notice, the only time that Paul brings up the issue of male and female equality is found in Galatians, let's just turn there, Galatians chapter 3, verse number 28. Here's what he says. 
There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying we're equal. We're equal. And somehow rooted in deep Christian tradition is this understanding that sexual roles in the church can never be gotten rid of. Let me tell you something, friends. I don't believe that the Bible can be proven wrong simply by the fact that some women can shoot a basket in a basketball court better than I can. Nor do I believe that some men are better, who are better cooks or housekeepers than their wives disprove that fact. We are equal. We are one in God's sight. I, I've always loved the, two, the story of the two little boys who were arguing and, and one said to the other, he said, my, mom, my dad can beat up your dad. The other little boy looked at him and he says, that's nothing. My mom can beat up your dad. <laughs> My point is this. What does all this prove? It proves nothing. We are called to be supporters and servants of one another. Men serving their wives. Wives serving their husbands. I believe also that the camels of Genesis chapter number 24 become so important here because Eleazar has prayed for a sign and now he finds it. I believe he probably broke into a smile when he saw Rebecca lean back against one of those dromedaries and run her fingers through that kinky camel hair. How important it'll be, he knows, for her to identify with this man Isaac. He knows that this man Isaac is crazy about camels and now he sees that she has a certain fondness for them herself. These are seeds of identity. As I said, no exchange of photographs. Talk of falling in love. Their focus was on integrity and commitment. If you can get those two things straight, guys. Integrity and commitment. You can make love work. With whomever the woman integrity and commitment. Eleazar was interested in watching Rebecca with those camels for servanthood is the soul of all relationships. How did, how did Old Testament men serve their women? Well, let me give you a couple of examples. The Bible tells us that Jacob, who was Isaac's eventual son, Isaac and Rebecca's eventual son, Jacob served seven extra years to win the woman of his dreams whose name was Rachel. He'd already served seven years, by the way, and been deceived by Rachel's dad. So he was willing to serve another seven years. Boaz, in the book of Ruth, he left handfuls of grain for his beloved Ruth, who was gleaning in the wheat fields. Samson, big strong Samson, slaughtered 30 Philistines in order to gain his bride. Later in their lives, this same Isaac, when famine had come to the land, he baked bread and found logic for his family. He even, he even broke his back digging a well, a private well for Rebekah, so that she'd have the plentitude of water that she'd known in her homeland where she once took care of watering his camels. Another indicator of Rebekah's servanthood is found in verses 31 and 32 that we read. She asks... Ladies, are you ready for this? She asked Eleazar to bring his camels into her house. Let that sink in for a moment. Ten camels to be brought into her house. Now... Eleazar, I think, is probably flabbergasted by that. Not only does he have his sign, he has much more. Any girl with this spirit of servanthood for camels had to be for Isaac. And these camels are witnesses. Most of you ladies, I'm guessing, have probably never had camels in your house. But I will say this, if you've had 30 or 40 sweaty young people in your house after an outdoor volleyball game, the similarities are awesome. And here's the reason I mention that. My wife did that for 10 years while I served as a youth pastor. 
for 10 years, our first 10 years of marriage. She, we served as youth pastors in our church, and she modeled to those young people what it was like to be a servant. And quite honestly, they as well as I, at that time, took that for granted. Brenda, how many enchiladas do you suppose you fixed over the years as fundraisers for the youth group? Thousands? Easily. Coordinating and planning all the ski trips, all of the kids' activities, all I did was go along and, and act like the man in charge. Those young people witnessed what it was like to be served. She was as committed to the task that God had called me to at that point in my life in ministry. And this was her way of sharing it. And she did so without so much as a whimper. Well, most of the time. There's integrity in that, friends. There's integrity in that. And if we could foster relationships of integrity and commitment into our young people's lives today, dads, this applies to you. Not only your family, but the church would show the results of it in the lives of young married couples 10 to 15 years down the road. Integrity and commitment. The love affair at the pastor's house demands that the pastor who regularly waters everyone else's camels care for his own camels as well. How often have I lovingly listened to three to five stories per week, people in the church crying about this, that, or the other, and then go home to my wife and I walk by her without so much as a word. Try to do my job of feeding the flock day in and day out, week after week. And, and then I come home on a Sunday evening, back when we used to have church on Sunday evenings. Come home on Sunday evening exhausted, fall instantly to sleep when I crawl into bed, not knowing or seemingly even caring that perhaps she's been hurting all day long with no one to listen to her. Guys, I'm talking about your role as dads and husbands. Very specifically, I remember an awful Sunday years ago when I was serving as the interim pastor of an American Baptist church in Lakin, Kansas. My first real pastorate. I felt on that day as if both of my messages had crashed and burned. It had been a bad day and I was in this I guess I could call it a vegetative state when I got home and didn't want to talk to anyone. I just wanted to sit staring blankly into space. And as I was sitting there feeling sorry for myself on that Sunday night, I was just dying for Brenda to say to me, boy, those were two really good messages today. But she didn't. And I, I was thinking to myself that it must take me pistol whipping somebody to give me some praise. And finally, when we're alone in the quietness of our bedroom, I broke the silence in my sweetest little Jesus voice that I could muster up at that time. And I said, Brenda, how come you never tell me you like my sermons? And, and as I said it, I tried to smile but the words came from these white-hot evangelistic tonsils, you know, and they'd already preached the love of Jesus twice that day, for heaven's sakes. And, and so trying to joke and, and lighten things up somewhat, she said, your sermons are okay for a part-time preacher and a full-time farmer. Wasn't exactly what I wanted to hear. But defensively, then I asked her, why don't you like my sermons? It, it would mean a lot if you just one time say, I liked your sermon. Sometimes I'm just, Brenda, dying to hear you say that. And her reply was one that I have not forgotten to this day. She said, you know when I die? And I said, when? She said, when I see you laughing and talking with the people in the church, shaking hands with everyone else, and then you walk by me not even noticing that I'm there. That's what I get for putting myself out there. 
good answer. Submission, friends, is a two-way street. We are to love our wives, guys, as Jesus loved the church. He wasn't a theologian, but Shakespeare once said it this way, he who does not show his love does not love. We have to show our wives and our families the love that we have for them. We have to do that. I, I, now, I've I got to hurry. I have more to say, but I'm not going to say it. I'm going to hurry to my close. The commitment between Isaac and Rebekah has been made. We find that, and, and then we go to verses 62 through 67, which I didn't read, and you can read on your own. But according to verse number 64, Rebekah is literally knocked off her camel when they arrive back at Abraham's place, and she sees Isaac. When Isaac sees the tenderness in which she looked at his camels, the arrangement was made. And eventually, verse number 67 says, and guys, you'll like this, it says, he took her into his tent. I thought you'd like it more than that. Just think what a, what a, what a great romance novel this would make. They enter the tent, they snuff out the light. And outside, i got to believe, the camels are smiling. It's on one of those nameless nights when Isaac and Rebekah conceived two twin boys, one of whom was to become a prince who struggled with God, for whom a dozen sons would be born that would change the course of human history. And of course, I'm speaking of the 12 sons who became the heads of of the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's sons. Guys, I believe that the tent, whatever your tent is, wherever it is, is the inner sanctum of all marriage relationships. It's there where the husband should speak words of reassurance to his wife. Letting her know that among all of those whom he has met, she is the one who knows him and loves him in a special way and that he loves her and knows her in a special way. That's what Ephesians 5.25 is all about. It, there it says this, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love them. Your wives need to hear words of reassurance. And husbands, you need to speak them to them and not just to them. You need to speak them to your kids. You need to let your kids know that they are loved, that they are valued. Are they perfect? Well, not unless they were mine. No, I can tell you mine weren't. But I wasn't the perfect dad either. And I, I, I'm just telling you some things this morning because I, I, I purpose that I was going to talk to you today more as a husband and a father than I am a pastor. Learn from some things that I have learned. Show love. Walk in integrity. Let your commitment speak volumes. Marital relationships are not about control and manipulation. They are about submission one to the other. And I look at myself and I wonder, what in the world did I have to offer Brenda? Certainly wasn't romantic words or charm, was it? It most definitely didn't have anything to do with a good physique. What are you laughing about, Rhonda? As you can tell, I'm not the dark-headed, good-looking stranger. I doubt that it was the blue of my eyes that drew her to me. So I'm hoping and I'm guessing that it might be the fact that I had a good heart. Because that's the most important thing. Yeah, I've, I've joked around about the camels, but I think that was what Eleazar was looking for in a bride for Isaac. Servanthood was the criteria, and the camels were witnesses to that. So husbands, fathers, guys, 
Think about those camels for a minute. Give them a firkin or two of water. And then pull your wives close and shut the door of your tent. And if you do that with sincerity and you do that with regularity, the affair at your house, like mine, with you as the priest of your home, will make for a vibrant and strong relationship. And you'll find that your marriage will be blessed. And when the fire of your relationship rages, take a peek outside. The camels will be smiling. Lord Jesus, I know that in many ways this morning I've tried to be a little bit humorous. But Lord, you know my heart. We live in a world with such a need for godly, strong men. Loving husbands who walk in integrity and commitment. Who are willing to serve without being manipulative. And who are willing to submit not only to the wife, but to one another. And dear Jesus, this morning, I, I, I guess that the cry of my heart is that I know that there are guys, probably some who may even be in this room this morning, who at one time or another have had difficulty being that submissive man of integrity committed to that wife that you have given to them. There may be even some men in this room this morning, Lord, who have hurt their wives' hearts by dabbling in things that disrespect and dishonor her. And Lord, we sang in that song a while ago that you give hope, you restore all that's broken. And dear Jesus, this morning I, I want these men, these dads, these husbands, these fathers, grandfathers, I want them to know, Lord, that it's never too late to become the men that you created them to be. Men of honor. Men of commitment. Men of integrity and purity. Strong leaders. Priests. Unto God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Dad, husband, you're here this morning and I'm just going to make this really simple. You want to be a better dad or husband than you've ever been before. If that's you, I want you to just quietly stand to your feet. Come forward and just stand here so that I can pray for you. Come on, dads. I know there's some here who want that, who deeply want that. Thank you, Lord, for these dads. God, you know every detail of every heart that's standing before me this morning. And as in any of us, you know you know about those secret places that we have. Those places known only to you and to us. And Lord, I pray that for whatever those secret places are in our hearts this morning, that they are only places that we find to get alone with you. 
and to seek your wisdom and to seek your ways and to ask for your help in fulfilling this great calling that you have given to us to be husbands and fathers and granddads to those that you've blessed us with. Lord, I pray for every dad who has struggled with sexual sin, pornography. God, I, I, I've worked with so many men whose lives were spent in prison as a result of addictions that started while they were young boys. And I know how difficult this is, and God, it's not something we're proud of. It's something that we can't shake without your help. And I'm praying for your deliverance for anyone that may be under that influence. Most importantly, Jesus, this morning, I'm praying that the wives and the children of these men who are standing here today in the days and weeks to come would notice a noticeable change in the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we have committed ourselves to them and the way that we walk with you. God, I'm praying that these men right here who are fathers, particularly those who are fathers of teenagers and children, would take so seriously, God, the responsibility that you have given them to raise up a generation of men and women, young men and women who honor you. And Jesus, I'm one of them standing here this morning, so all of this applies to me. Help me to be a better husband. Help us to be better husbands. Help us to be better dads. Help us to be be disciplined of our and the way we we treat our kids loving them enough to do what's necessary Lord to make sure that they know what's right and what's wrong loving enough to know that when they make us angry that's not the time to carry out the discipline but to wait till we can calm down, God, so that we can discipline them in love, having their best interests at heart. And Jesus, this morning, I pray for your abundant blessing upon everything that the hands of these men touch in the days and weeks ahead. I'm praying that you would prosper them in their business, that you would prosper them at their job, that you would prosper them in their home, that you would prosper them in every relationship of their lives as they seek to live, to live a life worthy of honoring you. And all of these things I ask for in Jesus' name.